This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The legal fight over public aid to private religious schools continues to head in new directions, acquiring new wrinkles and complexities with every passing year. Now we have a lawsuit developing in South Carolina that argues that denying aid to religious schools not only discriminates against religion, but is an act of racial discrimination as well. Well, as every school child knows, South Carolina has a long history of legal racial discrimination, but very few people are aware that racial bigotry of the past may contaminate the state's constitution or a particular clause in that constitution that forbids state aid to any religious school. Well, that's the claim that's being made by the Catholic Bishop of Charleston and the South Carolina's black colleges uh, in a case that's been filed in federal court. The case involves a decision by South Carolina's governor, Henry McMaster, who directed COVID dollars federal COVID dollars to private religious schools, including Catholic ones, and also to historically black colleges. And the governor's actions were ruled invalid under the state constitution and a specific clause in that constitution known as the Blaine Amendment. So it's a complicated story. And to explain it all, I have with me today a lead attorney for the plaintiffs, Daniel Sir of the Liberty Justice Center. Thank you, Mr. Sir, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me, Professor. It's an honor to be here. Well, um, Daniel, why is this money being directed to private religious schools? Isn't the COVID aid for the public schools? That's what I get told by the newspapers. So. I'm not sure I understand completely why the governor thought he could direct some of the money to private schools. Sure, Paul. So public schools have received a huge infusion of cash through the CARES Act and subsequent congressional COVID relief funds that have been made available to public schools and really to a variety of institutions that are hurting. And those funds have been made available to public schools uh, in the billions of dollars across the country. And they're distributed according to a formula that uh, sets how much each individual school district receives. Separately though, Congress also set aside small pots of money for governors to address the most urgent issues related to education in their state. It was called GEAR, the Governor's Emergency Education Relief Fund. There have actually been two iterations now of gear, one that, that has gone out the door already uh, and one that governors are allocating currently. And this was a result of a compromise in Congress to say that governors, uh, both blue state governors and red state governors know best the needs in their state to respond to the educational crisis that's been caused by this pandemic. So in the case of South Carolina, Governor McMaster looked at the needs in his state and he determined two things. He said that historically black colleges and universities uh, unfortunately tend to be behind in technology. So he was gonna use some of that money to go to historically black colleges and universities to upgrade their technology systems so that students could do essentially Zoom learning. And then he knew that a number of 
public schools uh, were closing, uh, but then a number of independent religious schools were staying open for in-person learning. And he also knew that a number of school families that go to private and religious schools were struggling to pay tuition because they had, had been laid off uh, due to the economic shutdown that accompanied the pandemic. And so he created the SAFE program, the Safe and Flexible Learning at Home program, education program, that would provide uh, essentially vouchers to parents who were experiencing the economic effect of the pandemic or whose, pro or whose public schools were closed to be able to go to private and religious schools. That's what he felt was the most important need that he could meet with these dollars that the federal government had trusted to his discretion. Oh, that's helpful to know. Uh, how much money is involved here? Yeah, so the $32 million uh, was allocated for the SAFE program, this, this voucher program to help uh, parents in uh, selecting independent religious schools. And then there was another $7 million set aside for the historically black colleges. Uh, since that point, uh, there have actually been additional dollars that South Carolina has made available that have also been uh, affected by this lawsuit. So those were discretionary dollars. There are also some mandatory dollars that were going out according to a formula for nonprofits. And because of this Blaine Amendment, the Catholic schools have been denied access to those general nonprofit dollars. And then there was a pot of money to support this, uh, institutions of higher education across the board, public and private. And the private colleges and historically black colleges uh, have been denied, denied access to those dollars uh, because of this Blaine Amendment. So we're talking about now tens of millions of dollars in COVID relief that these schools have been denied because of the Blaine Amendment in South Carolina. Well, aren't these, um, aren't they, isn't the money going directly to the, the schools and the colleges and not to the parents? Yeah, great question. So in the case of the safe vouchers, it's really the parent's choice to decide how to direct these dollars. Uh, in order to qualify for the program, parents had to be um, low or moderate income in order to qualify. They had to um, choose then where to send their, their child. So it was really the parent directing the dollars uh, to the school and the school was the ultimate recipient. And that was the argument we made in the South Carolina Supreme Court in the first iteration of this case was that the Blaine Amendment shouldn't even apply to these funds uh, because they were not directly benefiting, that's the constitutional term, they weren't directly benefiting the school, they were benefiting students. They were providing educational opportunity for these young people. And the schools were not really beneficiaries of the dollars, they were service providers. It was essentially uh, kind of like a government contract. The government was paying them to provide a service to these students. Unfortunately, the South Carolina Supreme Court saw it differently uh, and denied uh, that these dollars were going to benefit uh, the students as much as they were the schools. And as a result, this federal lawsuit is necessary. So you first litigated this case in the state courts, and it went all the way to the state Supreme Court, and they, they took the case very quickly, I think, didn't they? Uh, they did, Professor. So the teachers union and other uh, anti-school choice activists even though this was a temporary program, uh, saw it as a threat. And so they filed litigation right away to stop this using um, this Blaine Amendment as the basis for their case. Uh, it went right to the South Carolina Supreme Court on what we would call an original action. It, it started in the South Carolina Supreme Court. And um, 
the court heard it on an expedited basis and ultimately ruled uh, that this Blaine Amendment uh, applied to these federal funds that um, had come into the state treasury and that these funds were directly benefiting uh, not the students, but the schools. Obviously, we think that's a wrong reading. We think that these, these funds benefit students, uh, but the South Carolina Supreme Court sided with the teachers unions. And uh, that's why this federal lawsuit now is necessary. So then you decided to switch from the state courts to the federal courts and talk about the U.S. Constitution and how it applies to uh, state constitutions. So it gets to be a very comp complex case. <laughs> Let's talk about these Blaine Amendments, because the na this name Blaine Amendment gets thrown around a lot. And some of our mm -hmm. may have heard of it, but others may not have. So. So who was Mr. Blaine? Yeah, James G. Blaine uh, from Maine uh, was a Republican congressman uh, from uh, over a century ago. He was serving- Wasn't he in the Senate? Now. I always thought he was in the Senate. Was he, was he in the House of Representatives? Uh, he started in the House and then he, he went on to the Senate, I think. Um, so uh, James G. Blaine, he was from Maine and uh, it was the 1870s, 1880s, and one of the things that was happening in America at that time was there's a wave of immigration coming from Europe, coming from places like Italy, Poland, Sicily. Uh, and those immigrants uh, were right, they were arriving at the Statue of Liberty. They're arriving at Ellis Island. Uh, and they were coming and taking jobs in, in major urban centers. And there was a wave of nativist reaction to these newly arrived immigrants. And they saw them as taking, you know, American jobs. They saw them as uh, not necessarily knowing English. And so there was this negative nativist reaction. And one thing that's true of people who come from places like Italy and Sicily and Poland uh, is that they were overwhelmingly Catholic. And so unfortunately that nativist reaction expressed itself, not just in a animus against immigrants but a specific prejudice against Catholics. Even though Catholics have been an important part of our American history to that point, and it served um, honorably in, in you know, everything from the Revolution to the Civil War, like there's this strong anti-Catholic prejudice. And uh, at the time, you, you know, you know this on the Education Next podcast, right? Like public education looked different in the 1870s and 80s. It was basically kind of a, a mainstream Protestantism with re, you know, reading the Bible in schools and school prayer. And when Catholics came in, they challenged all of that. And their students were enrolling or their students weren't enrolling in public schools. They were enrolling in private Catholic schools, parochial schools. And so uh, James G. Blaine, uh, along with Ulysses S. Grant and a number of other uh, political leaders kind of capitalized on that anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic sentiment to political ends, to their political advantage. Well, they nearly got an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, as I recall, and uh, I think it came within one vote in the Senate and actually passed the House of Representatives. Of course, it has to be approved by state legislatures as well, but, you know, this was a pretty big political movement, uh, which uh, nearly was successful in changing the nature of the U.S. Constitution uh, so that it explicitly forbids aid to uh, parochial schools or religious schools. So, uh, you know, that's, um, 
that's something we don't uh, appreciate is that the original uh, First Amendment to the Constitution, which says there shall be no establishment of religion, is sort of ambiguous with respect to exactly how government can support institutions that have a religious uh, uh, context. But this law was going to be, this amendment to the Constitution was going to be very clear and very explicit on the point, no aid to private religious schools or sectarian schools. Uh, so that, that Blaine Amendment nearly passed. And in fact, uh, in South Carolina, it did pass and became attached to the state constitution, did it not? That's right, Paul. So across the country, about 35 states adopted what we would today call Blaine Amendments that after the federal Blaine Amendment failed, and you're right, it was a close vote. It came down to the wire, which I think shows just the political power uh, that this anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant prejudice had in our country at the time. Uh, so after it failed at the federal level, the, the lobbyists, the, the American Protective Association, the National League for the Protection of American Institutions, these, these uh, political organizations that embodied this movement, uh, they started working at the state level. And in 35 states, uh, they, they passed Blaine Amendments. And well, South you know, Carolina, this interpretation of, of the, you know, discriminatory intention of the, of the Blaine Amendment and the fact that it contaminates that amendment and has been accepted by the Supreme Court in the Espinoza case, uh, Espinoza v. Montana, where uh, the Supreme Court, you know, just a year or so ago, ruled that, in fact, uh, the Montana Blaine Amendment is unconstitutional. Now, given the fact that the Montana Blaine Amendment is unconstitutional, how could the South Carolina Supreme Court ignored that US Supreme Court decision when it ruled that the Blaine Amendment in South Carolina forbid the governor from doing what he tried to do. Yeah, great question, Paul. So in Espinoza, you're right, there was a huge win for both school choice advocates and religious liberty advocates that the Supreme Court laid down as the law of the land uh, that government institutions cannot discriminate against faith-based institutions based simply on their religious status. So in Montana, the government said, you can participate private schools in this tax credit program unless you have a religious status, in which case, because you are religious in nature, we are going to automatically disqualify you from the program. And the Supreme Court said, no, Montana, you can't discriminate against religious institutions simply because they're religious. Well, so given that, you know, the South Carolina Supreme Court's got a problem. So how do they distinguish the case in South Carolina from the case in Montana? I'm, I'm sure they found a way to do it, but exactly. They did. So it's just a quirk of history that out of the 35 Blaine Amendments, about a dozen of them don't use the word religious or sectarian in the way that they're drafted. They use a different term like not government controlled or private school uh, rather than saying religious school. The intention was the same. The people behind it were the same. But just through a quirk of drafting, the practical implications are actually really important. That's true for- So in other words, the South Carolina constitution 
doesn't talk about no aid to religious schools. They just say no aid to private schools. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It says no aid to religious or other non non public schools. And so, if you're a Montessori school, right, or if you're a secular um, just college prep academy that's that's run privately, you are equally unable to access. So then there is no discrimination against religion here. It's just a discrimination against private schools. So how do you have a case in the federal courts uh, on on a matter where there's no clear expressed intention to select out religious schools? Yeah, so that's the argument we're having right now. And the reality is government does this frequently where it passes what looks like a neutral law but it does it for a purpose, a, a motive that is either racially or religiously motivated. Um, and, and the Supreme Court deals with this frequently and lower courts deal with this frequently. The leading case in this area is a case called Village of Arlington Heights. It's from uh, Illinois, a suburb of, of Chicago. And it was about a, a zoning plan that on its face never used a racial word. It didn't say only African-Americans can live in this neighborhood and only upper income white people can live in this neighborhood. It was neutral on its face. Um, But the challenge was that it was done in a way that was meant to be discriminatory uh, against race. And so there've been a number of other cases um, about either racial or religious discrimination. So the big, religious discrimination case was a town that passed a law uh, about treatment of animals uh, and and um, animal welfare. But what they were really doing was targeting a particular type of ritual sacrifice uh, of animals that was done by a particular religious group that was just unpopular in the community. And the Supreme Court said, no, even though it's a neutral law, what they're doing here is they're targeting this particular religious community and, and we can see that from the evidence in the historical record. And so we're going to strike it down as being motivated by this religious animus. Well, of course, it's hard to tell what people's motivations are. <laughs> so, what's your evidence that it really was bigotry that was behind this? Yeah, so the good news is uh, they weren't shy about it in 1895 uh, when the state constitution was was drafted in South Carolina in 1895, Uh, the politicians who were doing it, they were bragging to their voters that we are are following through on what you want. And what you want is anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic. And in the particular case of South Carolina, not only was the Blaine Amendment motivated by this anti-Catholic prejudice, uh, but there's also a a deep-seated racial motivation that we're just coming off the reconstruction period and during reconstruction a number of northern religious missionaries had come to south carolina and started schools to teach newly freed slaves especially to read to create literacy among i think the the freedmen bureau was behind that is that aren't they sometimes called the freedmen bureau schools or something to that effect i I think yeah good memory ball so there were this project yeah. Yeah. So there were government sponsored Freedmen Bureau schools uh, and then there were government funded uh, religious schools that were, were often partnerships between 
uh, government funding and private philanthropists from the North, where often Northern churches uh, would partner with Southern churches from within the same denominational family uh, to start schools to serve newly freed slaves. And at the 1895 uh, convention where they wrote this constitution, the whole goal was to undo reconstruction. It was to suppress the African-American population in South Carolina and to cement white political power. It was championed by a man known as Pitchfork Ben Tillman. And his whole mission was to protect white power in South Carolina now that the feds had left and reconstruction was over. Okay, and the I, way get, he did it. That I was, get it. I get it. There was racial bigotry. There's no question about it. But that's 1895. The Constitution, the constitutional provision that's now on the books in South Carolina was a different constitution. They, you know, South Carolina rewrote its constitution in what was mm-hmm. it, 1972. So how do you connect what's happened back in 1895 to the constitutional clause that was written in 1972? Isn't, isn't that a bit of a stretch? Uh, so that's a great question for our expert witnesses in the case. Uh, and the answer they both give is no. So uh, first of all, it's kind of a legal principle that when uh, a provision starts in a, a constitution or a law that's discriminatory in nature, if it's just readopted or even revised in the future, uh, but the core of the provision remains, um, unless there's a really good independent intervening reason, the court's assumption is that it just carried through. So this is true in Montana. In Montana, the Blaine Amendment was put in place in uh, the late 1800s. Montana also redid its state constitution in the 1970s, and they readopted the Blaine Amendment. And Justice Alito is very clear in his opinion uh, that the prejudice that was present in the 1880s when the provision was first adopted, because it was readopted in the 1970s, like you still have that stain of prejudice associated with that provision when they choose to readopt it in the the 70s, they carry it forward essentially. And so we think the same thing is true in South Carolina. And we have to remember in the 1960s in South Carolina, when that provision's being drafted, like we're in the heart of the civil rights fight. Uh, it is a struggle between the civil rights activists and the white power structure in South Carolina still. They're fighting segregation. They're fighting desegregation. There's massive resistance, quote unquote, uh, to desegregation by federal court order. And uh, as we go into the historical record, what we see is that this provision uh, was essentially modified to make way for what we would call segregation academies, the sort of white-only private schools uh, that were sprouting up as a response to uh, desegregation, court-ordered desegregation. And so they wanted to modify it a little bit so that these segregation academies could be publicly funded. But at the same time, you know, Catholics who were desegregating and embracing uh, racial diversity in Catholic schools there was still a deep-seated prejudice against them. And so this, this version we have from 1972 is a kind of compromise between those two principles. So uh, I can see your argument, and I can see the connection between the bigotry back in the 19th century and the bigotry in the mid-20th century that you're talking about here. So I, 
the, the race, but then you, the NAACP is opposing your position on this issue. They're, they're defending the, uh, the state Supreme Court's action. So how can there be racial bigotry if the NAACP is on the other side? Yeah, it's a great question, Paul. And honestly, the answer I think is really sad uh, that the NAACP, which has attempted to come into this case as an intervener defendant, which means that they are uh, trying to take the side of the government in defending the Blaine Amendment. The NAACP is so opposed to school choice that they are willing to minimize the history of racism in South Carolina that the NAACP is so opposed to school choice that they are defending a Blaine Amendment that is denying these historic, five historically black colleges and universities in South Carolina equal access to millions of dollars in federal COVID aid, that they are just so dug in on their opposition to school choice and their alliance with the teachers union, the public sector teachers unions, that they will cynically use this Blaine Amendment to try to stop school choice, even knowing the awful history behind it. Well, are there any civil rights groups that are supporting your position in this issue? Yeah, so one of the clients in this case is the South Carolina Independent Colleges and Universities, which includes five historically black colleges. Uh, these historically black colleges were started by uh, Northern missionaries in that kind of post-Civil War Reconstruction era that I was talking about. And they uh, continue to this day to serve uh, overwhelmingly African-American student body. And they continue to be victims of the prejudice that, that was written into the state constitution in 1895 uh, as they've been denied millions of dollars in federal COVID relief that public universities are getting no problemo. And yet, because of this fight over school choice, uh, these historically black colleges are collateral damage, essentially, of the teachers union's opposition to school choice. Well, so this case is, is got to be decided quickly because that federal aid uh, disappears as of, I think, next fall, isn't it? Pretty, pretty soon. Uh, so how you the courts are notoriously slow. <laughs> and now I guess the, the state Supreme Court of Carolina could act quickly when it wanted to. So are you going to get enough? Are you going to get any action in time? Yes, absolutely. So we have made uh, very clear to our judge and to uh, our opposing counsel uh, that this case is not a timeline, that for our clients to achieve justice in this matter, we need uh, a prompt ruling. So we just submitted our uh, what's called motion for summary judgment, which is sort of our opening case to the court uh, to say this is our, our main argument for why we should win. And that was accompanied by uh, two expert witness reports, one from Dr. Blease Graham of Texas A&M University, who literally wrote the book for Oxford University Press on the South Carolina State Constitution. Uh, and then another from Dr. Charlie Glenn of Boston University, uh, who might be a friend of yours, Paul. Uh, oh, I know him well. Yes. Yep. So Charlie is uh, a nationwide uh, renowned expert on Blaine Amendments and the ugly history of, of prejudice from that era. 
And so our motion combined with those two expert witness reports sort of is the basis for our case. Uh, the other side is a few weeks to respond. And we're going to have this thing all ready for the judge to decide by the start of November. Well, this sounds like that we have a timely, but then of course, uh, the the judge it's up to the judge really then to decide how how quickly this could move forward uh but if he rules against you what was your recourse then yeah so um we plan to appeal uh if the judge goes against us judge Hendricks has been very fair thus far she's moved promptly thus far um and we feel obviously like we have a a, a strong case uh but if it works out that that we can't convince her uh, then we will appeal to the Fourth Circuit um, and ultimately to the U.S. Supreme Court. We think that the Espinoza case sets a, a really good foundation for our argument. Justice Alito in particular has a great concurring opinion in Espinoza that goes through a lot of this history. Uh, and though uh, courts are understandably reluctant to delve deeply uh, into the motives of legislators, uh, when it's clear, as it is in this case, and when it affects a lot of other states, not just South Carolina, but these other dozen that have similarly worded broad Blaine amendments, uh, we think we've got a great vehicle if it comes to it for the Supreme Court to, to take and decide our case. Well, thank you, Daniel, for explaining uh, this complex story uh, to our listeners. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's an important case. We appreciate everything you do to talk about reform and uh, education and why it's important for our kids and our communities. So thanks for having me on the program. I've been speaking with Daniel Sir, attorney for the plaintiffs who charged that the denial of federal aid to historically black colleges and other private religious institutions is contaminated by the racial bigotry surrounding clauses of the South Carolina Constitution. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.